The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to save you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and explain this crazy stuff. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Stop rubbernecking! That's my suggestion to anyone who's hoping to find a bottom in the train wreck that is tech. You want to start buying when the accident's over. But what if the accident's still ongoing? Why get involved in the pileup? I'd much rather use ways to avoid the accident entirely. I think this is an essential point on a sedate day like today, of course, not underneath, where the Dow inched up three points, doesn't beat the climb 0.16%, but here we go again. The Nasdaq lost 0.59%. Right now, there's a consensus that tech's done going down. You know that. I know that. I mean, there's got to be some value. There's got to be some value somewhere, doesn't there, doesn't there? After all, I mean, how can stocks be down 50, 60, 70, 80% and not have some value? That was my reaction when I read a research report downgrading Roku this very morning. The digital TV play, which had already plummeted from nearly 500 to the low 50s. And I saw uh, after the downgrade that the stock failed to go down. So this were, there, there, there was something akin to rubbernecking here. An analyst who recommended Roku at 228 in September 2020 rode that buy all the way to the stock's high of 490 and change, then rode it back down and jumped off here in the 50s? The house of pain. With the stock failing to go down when he finally took it off the buy list, I thought to myself, aha, doesn't that have to be the bottom, right? I mean, the clearing of the accident, downgraded, no doubt there. Mm, can't we finally consider Roku de-risk? Can't we finally start? Bye, bye, bye. Roku! But then you actually read the report, and there's simply no reason whatsoever to buy this thing. I mean, Roku is losing a ton of money, and the losses are only going to get worse. The revenues are slowing. They're losing market share to connected TV. They've got no real mode. Their advertising business is on the decline. There's simply no reason to think that Roku's bottomed. 
other than dramatic irony. Some guy who liked it all the way down, abandoned ship, and the stock didn't react. Well, there is a real reason. I'm not picking on Roku or even the analysts. Sure, it might look silly to downgrade a stock that's already off 76% for the year. But there's a reason they threw it in the towel. This is a company with lots of problems and no solutions. There's no reason to own it unless you're expecting a takeover bid. But nobody would want to acquire this thing unless they could get it for much lower. And that's assuming the deal doesn't get blocked by the Federal Trade Commission. They know nothing! Which has become ferociously anti-merger. But Roku's just an example of what I'm wary of as we head into a period where lots of tech companies are reporting. I'm worried that they're simply piling up again and watching this pile up is just plain sad. I'm sure some of the proverbial cars aren't damaged, but maybe they can even extricate themselves from the pileup. But many are indeed like Roku. They've got almost nothing going for them. <laughs> except that their stocks are down so much that people figure, well, they can't possibly go any lower. But that's not true. It can always go lower until it gets to zero. Stocks do stop at zero. I've been around. I know this. Witness CrowdStrike this very evening, a fine company that guided lower tonight, the first real miss in this fine cybersecurity company's public history. Fine. What caused it? Macroeconomic headwinds. Ouch! I've been through something like this before. During the dot-com collapse over 20 years ago, from 1999 through 2000, some 330 companies came public. Only a handful of them ultimately made it out. Well, that's only, only a handful made it to the promised land. Yet at every step of that decline, you know there were people who simply had to take a stab at it. And that's how we felt it was. A stab. There's something alluring about... No- Alluring, A-L-L-U-R-I-N-G, really hard word for Philadelphians to say. Something alluring about trying to find, you know, buying something, knowing that you're buying far away from the top. So why not get in much lower than those who were foolish enough to buy the same stock near the peak? I mean, aren't you so much smarter than they are? It's alluring, but you know what? There's no real logic to buying a dog. All you're doing is guessing whether a stock's done going down. You aren't analyzing the underlying company. Separate stock from company. You know we teach that all the time here. So when you looked at the tech stocks back then and bought because they were down 50, 60, 70, 80%, what you missed was that you were buying a piece of paper that was still at a huge disconnect from the underlying company. Who cares if it's down 80% from the high when there's a high chance that the business is going under? Of course, I like the dot-com year. Many of these biggest losers are actually making money. Let me just, I don't want to confuse this. This is a much better crop than we had in that period. I brought the street.com public in 1999. I know what bad is. These are much better stocks. But look, look, why don't we just pick an example? Look, look, we just had them on Zoom video, okay? No danger of them going out of business. It stocks, but the stock is down from 588 at the height of the pandemic to just under $70. Now, that's still a loss. Zoom's a lot less essential in a post-COVID world, but it's still very profitable. You know, it could make nearly four bucks per share this year. It's, still, it's sitting on $5 billion in cash. That's huge. The stock's only worth $20 billion. But I could have said the same thing when it was valued at $25 billion or $30 billion or $40 billion. Well, it's better than its analogs in 2000. What kind, that kind of analysis would have lost your fortune last year. And I'll bet it's going to keep you losing money because the an, analysts think Zoom can only earn $3.53 per share next year. That's right. You're looking at a down year. And no portfolio manager worth their salt wants to buy stock in a company that's going to have a down year. Now, maybe Zoom, you think, you know, I got an idea. Maybe Zoom can reignite itself, right? Smart people are can win. I mean, come on. 
And they could use that $5 billion in change to change their stripes. Certainly possible. A few weeks ago, we interviewed Kelly Steckelberg, Zoom's terrific CFO. She talked about all sorts of cool initiatives. I thought they were cool, including a way to look up parts of conversations by keywords. But if you bought it based on an interview, you're now down 10%. Do you know how many times people have tried to find the bottom in Zoom? Betting that it can't be like 2000 because it's very profitable and it's a very good business and it hasn't mattered at all. And Zoom is among the best of these enterprises. There are so many, there's so, there's so much money. Uh, there's being bad. People are buying companies based still on a price to sales basis, even though I've told you over and over again, please, price to earnings. Don't buy stocks that are losing money. Even if the sales are being hurt by a slowing economy. Again, to some extent, these tech stocks have been somewhat de-risked. I'll give you that because they're down a great deal and the underlying companies have admitted that business has slowed. But I say that they won't truly be de-risked until management decides to pivot from a growth at all cost mindset. The vast majority of these companies are still doing that to a profitability at some cost mindset, like we saw recently from Palo Alto Networks, whose stock is being brought down tonight by CrowdStrike. Unfortunately, these stocks are few and far between, and the good ones are indeed being taken down by kind of a reverse Gresham's law. No, it's a Gresham's law for stock market. Like the bad stocks are driving out the good. Now, I'm not a- against owning some tech at all. We own some profitable ones with real moats and pricing power for the travel trust. You can follow along by joining the CNBC Investing Club. I wish you would. We teach every day. Yet even those higher quality techs are down a great deal, and they got hit yet again today. If you want to own tech here, you have to know what you're getting into. Because in this environment, it takes a lot of patience. And there will be pain. The house of pain. And ultimately, some will produce gains, but not quite yet. However, you don't have to own tech. That's the point of what I'm talking about. I say put on ways. I know how to use ways. I, mean, I learned. And go down other streets. The industrial street, the food street, the drug street, the oil street even. When you go down Tech Avenue, the police wave you by and say, look, there's nothing to see here. Keep going. Keep going. But on these other streets, there's something to see and something worth buying. Bottom line, why rubberneck when you can invest in stocks of companies that have a lot going for them? I think that's much better than sifting through the wreckage of tech simply because their stocks are down a great deal and you figure enough is enough. Sadly for the bulls, history says that's just not true. And in Indiana, and... Hey, Jim, thanks a lot for taking my call. Of course. What's up, Ben? I'm a super happy club member, so grateful. And I'm long Lily stock, but I also have some calls on Lily. I'm up about 80%. They expire mid-January. So could you coach me up a little bit about how and when to trim and close the position? Okay, sure. For first of all, I don't advise on options, and I would take the profits in those, even though you know we have a huge position, Eli Lilly, for the club. I do worry. I mean, look, everyone's saying that Lilly's uh, Alzheimer's drug is not as good as some of the others. It's it's in early stages. I'm not willing to say that. I do know that their anti-obesity drug is going to be the star of tw- of late 2023. Sell the calls, keep the common. It's like you know, keep the cannoli. You know, whatever. Stop rubbernecking. That's my suggestion to anyone who's hoping to find a bottom in the train wreck that is tech. Oh, man, tonight, Emerson Electric held an investor conference earlier today. I'm taking a closer look at the headlines. Company's top brass. Then, can the rally off the lows keep going? I'm going off the charts to get a technical look at where this market could be headed. And it's iffy. Oh, and DICOM's recent downfall after earnings. Could it be a buying opportunity? I'm turning in my homework on the stock after you asked about it in last night's lightning round. 
So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. The industrials keep putting up good numbers, and I think they can keep working, which is why I want to take a fresh look at the new Emerson Electric. Now, this is a classic industrial that spent the last couple of years transforming itself under a new management team. They made a big industrial software acquisition, multiple divestitures, with the result that Emerson is now primarily focused on automation technologies. Today, the company pitched its new strategy at Investor Day event at here at the New York Stock Exchange, where they also rang the closing bell. Afterwards, we got a chance to sit down with the architect of this transformation. His name is Lyle Carsonby. He's the president and CEO of Emerson Electric, and it's quite exciting. Take a look. Well, this is an amazing transformation. I first saw this company years ago when it was basically in syncorator and some valves. <laughs> this new Emerson to me looks exactly what most people at home would like about an industrial of the future. So I want to give you a chance just to talk about the transformation. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It has been a very active 22 months. Uh, we had a vision for the company. We worked very closely with our board of directors to execute that vision. Um, through uncertain economic times, uh, we're able to not only deliver financial performance, but transform the portfolio of the company. And we had one very clear thing in mind, which was to create a cohesive, high growth, high margin, high free cash flow automation company. A company that is connected in its main cores of automation with a technology stack that is unparalleled in the industry, diversity of customers in industry, and most importantly, Jim, optionality on M&A, which we now have in a $230 billion TAM, which is pretty exciting. Right. Now, you have their last deal gives you a lot of cash. These deals are hard to do. And just congratulations for even getting them done. There are some people who feel like, well, that's it. I think that you've got a platform to do the next 10 years of Emerson. You're, you're absolutely right. I, I think 
we identified four adjacencies today for M&A activity right. uh, going forward. Obviously, $8 billion of after-tax proceeds right. once we close the climate technologies transaction with Blackstone. And you mentioned that transaction. Again, mm -hmm. a phenomenal effort by our partner there Amazing. to bring that through. It was a challenging time in the markets to do that. Our hats off to, to their commitment. But now we have a lot of optionality for adjacencies, technology alignment, mm -hmm. customer alignment, and most importantly, and market diversification as well. But when I look at the overall, I think of this. I think of a, a company for people who are watching the show. They want to find a stock, a company, mm -hmm. that is doing something that, to make it so there's less waste, that is a, a greening company, so to speak, mm -hmm. that helps the other companies try to, that's yep. not greenwash, that actually right. is about the yep. future. All of these different companies have a couple things in common, which to me make me feel like you're helping everyone become a better corporate citizen. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, you're the only company that's doing that that I know of. No, we, it's a phenomenal set of cards yeah. that we have. And if you think about four critical macro drivers over the next, let's say, decade, you think about digital transformation, right. the use of data, and how that enables customers to go to top quartile performance. You think about energy affordability and security. We all learn about that the hard way, and Europe is struggling with that today. Right. We have a role to play there. Sustainability that you mentioned, whether that's decarbonization of existing facilities, yeah. which we're working very closely with our customers globally, mm -hmm. or new energy sources, where we have a tremendous portfolio of technology to go forward on. And then lastly, it's the nearshoring of technologies. Right. It's I love semiconductor, that. life sciences, and even energy, Jim, you can think around that. That context. Right. As well. well, I mean, I, I, I like the concept. You have four critical technology areas for innovation disruptive measurement technologies. Well, when mm -hmm. I first met Emerson, you measured things. Right. But now you're measuring things for the way that the future is. Now, do you have software people who are engineers? Who's doing this right. internally for Emerson? And I know you've got this kind of very cool partnerships that make it so you've got good software exposure. Phenomenal. Jim, we have over 5,000 R&D engineers across Emerson. Good. About half of those are software engineers. The other half are electrical mechanical engineers. They are, we, they are spread across 15 major R&D sites. And 25% of our sales today, today are of products sold, developed in the last five years. Really so the important. vitality of the portfolio is very important to us. And we'll spend over 6% of sales in R&D as we go forward, and that number will grow higher. And also the growth is increasing with every single divestiture. I want to talk about one just metaphorically yes, so sir. people understand that. The, the arc of what you've done. When I met Mr. Knight, who's a great predecessor of yours, uh, what he talked to me about were valves, uh, heating and air conditioning, and the insincorator, the garbage disposal. Mm -hmm. We don't use garbage disposals in our house because we regard them as being wasteful. We now compost. To me, yeah. that's metaphorically, you are that journey. You yeah. don't want to be in the home incinerator, but you want to be saving the climate. That's right. Now, aligning the portfolio to underlying growth, yes. secular macros, is really what the vision was about. And the cohesiveness, so that A plus B equals C, and it makes sense to an investor, to a customer, and it makes sense from an innovation perspective as well. That's what we try to do. And that automation portfolio that we have today, and you think about the stack of technology, Jim, mm -hmm. the sensing elements you just mentioned, the control elements, and then the software layer on top, enables us to bring that to a customer and solve 
significant. 7% of Emory's sales tied to sustainability, enabling technologies for the global sustainability imperatives. To me, uh, I looked at every single one of the companies that claims to be automating. And there's some that have come on the show, and they're very fine companies. You're the only pure play automation company out there. And this is a remarkable transformation, but we're not done. Should we expect to see more things within the next year? I am so excited, Jim, about the opportunities we have, both organically and with M&A. As, well, as, as we mentioned, we've, we've, we've done a lot in 22 months. We have a phenomenal management team, a great board of directors, and I'm excited about the future Well, you the mentioned it's been tough times, except for there's one thing that hasn't been tough, the, the trajectory of your stock since you've gotten involved. Congratulations. You. You're Thank making you, shareholders money. You're doing great things for the environment, Thank and you. it's just been a remarkable run. That's Lyle Carsonby. He's the president and CEO of Emerson EMR. What a run. It's a long deck, as we call it, but you will really understand it's all in English. It's all easy. It's all bite-sized, and you've got to read it, and you should own it. They have money's back in the spring. Coming up, will this stock make you skip to your loo? The charts tell a story about the athleisure standard bearer. Next. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgart Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash M-O-A. Brought to you by Argenix. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. For the better part of the last year, the market's been an absolute horror show. Blood and gore all over the place as the bears rampage and the bulls drown under a tide of red ink. But in the last month and a half, we've caught a stunning rebound, mostly because it's starting to feel like the Federal Reserve can win its war against inflation without wrecking the entire economy. Now we need to ask ourselves one question. Can this rally off the lows keep going or will the rug get yanked out from us again? Remember, we had a great run over the summer, too, before the whole move collapsed in the last few weeks of August. Back then, commodity prices peaked and plummeted from their highs, a major victory in the fight against inflation. But in late August, j crushed our hopes, making it clear that we were still looking at a series of supersized rate hikes. I think this time's a little different. We've made a lot more progress in containing inflation. The federal funds rate is already 150 basis points higher than it was in August. And we fixed most of our supply chain problems, which are causing a lot of inflation. And that is a major component of the problem all the way down the food chain. But 
it is tough to get a read on this environment, which is why I like to step back from my own judgment calls and try to be a little more, I don't know, let's just say detached, make, take a more quantitative approach. So tonight we're going off the charts with help of Carolyn Barod. She's a brilliant technician who's teaching at IM.academy SFX. I know a mouthful, IM.academy SFX. And she's teaching stocks and futures. It's a stock and futures academy. She thinks, and I didn't want to hear this from her, but we did over the weekend. Got to get more cautious. So let's go over it first with the S&P. This is a daily chart of the S&P 500. Lately, this picture has been looking a lot better for the bulls with some of the daily moving averages suddenly turning into a nice floor of support. Okay, remember, these are all the key ones. However, Broden wants to give you a real big heads up because she sees the S&P approaching an important hurdle on the way up. And if it can't jump that hurdle, well, then she thinks we're headed down. Remember, Broden likes to look at past swings and to give them security that project them forward in various permutations, sometimes one for one, sometimes through the prism of what's known as Fibonacci ratios. For whatever reason, these past swings do often tend to repeat themselves. There's no logical reason necessarily that I can think of why this would happen, but there's no denying the common pattern. In the case of the S&P 500, Broden points out that from late 2021 through early January 2022, this thing put on a 539-point rally. There's your number, okay? If you look at the recent runoff, the October 13th lows, what happened? Well, the S&P put on a very similar rally. 542, 539. I mean, that's a rounding error, right? I mean, it's almost the exact same thing. Very similar in scale to last year's final leg. Again, however, what matters? It matters because when you look at a chart, many swings tend to be similar in size to past moves. Broden says is something important you need to keep an eye on. So five, I want you to remember this number, 539, 542. Why is it important? Well, look at what happened after the S&P peaked on January 4th. We got a nightmare decline. Index fell 1,327 points into, into last month's lows. I mean, this is horrendous. Broden's not saying we're going to repeat that kind of meltdown, but it's not good when a rally runs out of steam. And she thinks there's a real possibility this one might be doing just that. Broden's identified a couple of key resistance levels based on both her symmetry projections uh, and her Fibonacci method. They give us a ceiling between 4031 and 4043. Okay, so we're right where it it really matters. Now, last week, the S&P tried and failed to break through the ceiling, okay? And since then, it's pulled back. Doesn't help that the ceiling of resistance is pretty close to the S&P's 200-day moving average. That's this one, okay? You see see the ceiling? That's the purple line. Uh, It also tends to act as a ceiling when you're coming in from underneath it. Broden thinks that it gives you a good excuse to take profits. What's it all mean? She's not saying that the rally's toast, but Broden says the SP needs to clear this hurdle. It needs to break out above last week's high of 4034, or else we could be vulnerable to more downside. In short, she sees this as a make-or-break moment for the SP 500, at least in the near term. I did not want to hear that, but it doesn't matter. Remember, I said this is a clinical way to look at the market. So what would make uh, be a more bullish chart right now? Let's, uh, let's switch it. I, I, I've been depressed enough already about what's happening in the NASDAQ. Let, here's a good NASDAQ chart. Check out the daily chart in Lululemon. Now, in Broden's eyes, this is a much more compelling picture. You know I'm a huge fan of Lulu because it's an extremely well-run retailer with a loyal customer base. I've had them one a number of times. As for Broden, she likes the chart because you can see a clear pattern of higher highs and higher lows in recent months. This is what we want. Plus, Lulu's trading above its 50-day 
And it's 200-day moving average. Okay, so those are we're good on that case. Uh, and, and something like that's a green light for chart watchers. Broden follows a different, a different traffic light, though. She likes to watch the five-day and the 13-day exponential moving averages, EMA, very short term. When the five-day goes above the 13-day, which is what happened here, uh, that's her buy trigger. When it goes below, that's when you want to sell. Right now, Lulu's in buy mode. In Broden's eyes, these are ideal conditions to anticipate higher prices. Of course, Lululemon has its own hurdles to jump. It's got a ceiling of resistance, 376, 381, right there, okay, uh, starting above 13 points from where it's currently trading. As, Lulu, as long as Lulu can clear this ceiling of resistance, clear this hurdle, next, tar- next target, 454, which would represent a fantastic run. She says she likes Lou's chart as long as it doesn't fall below its floor of support, which is at 340, and that's down nearly 25 bucks from here. And by the way, I did a lot of work on Lou before I came in, checked with a couple of analysts, checked with some store checks, and everything jives with what you see here. Finally, for a big picture bullish chart, I want you to take a gander at the Dow Jones Industrial Average ETF, symbol DIA. Unlike the S&P 500, the Dow has the same technical advantage as we just saw with Lululemon, maybe a little less exaggerated. Broden points to a clear pattern of higher highs and higher lows. See, we've got this going for us here. While all the moving averages are on the side of the bulls, okay? Her only hesitation with the Dow is that she's waiting for a new buy signal. Here she's watching a 30-minute chart. Can you imagine? Where each tick represents half an hour, waiting for that same exponential moving average crossover where the five-period moving average goes above the 13-period one. That said, the Dow's done a good job of clearing these important hurdles. It's above the major ceilings of resistance. Broden wouldn't be surprised to see the ETF go from 338 today to 358 in the not-too-distant future. Isn't that amazing how you'd think that this could had to be in sync with the S&P? No, they're really divergent. Now, if you watch last night's show, you know that I am in agreement with her. Uh, this is where I've said you should be. Over and over and over again, make things, do stuff, return capital, pay dividend, profit. Dow's been the strongest of the major averages. I bet it stays that way through at least the end of the year. Tonight's negative action in a bunch of NASDAQ stocks, including uh, some important cybersecurity names, only confirms again that the Dow Jones is the strongest of the indices. Here's the bottom line. The charts interpreted by Carolyn Baroden suggest that the S&P 500 could be due for some near-term turbulence if it can't break out above last week's highs. But there are still stocks she likes, Lululemon, and she likes the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Let's take some calls. Why don't we start with Russell in New Jersey. Russell. Booyah, booyah, booyah. How you doing? Well, I like that. A triple booyah. You can always use one of those on a tough day. What's going on? Hey, I wanted to know what you thought about M-A-T, Mattel. Uh, It has uh, not uh, been acting well, um, which bothers me. I know Hasbro's been very weak. The last quarter was not perfect, but we know that they've got a lot of big movies, a lot of entertainment in the pipe for next year. I think you wait till the end of the year and maybe pick some up. I'm not going to be aggressive on it right now because I did not love the last quarter, even though I think it's been a remarkable turn. Hey, how about Steve in California? Steve. Hi, Jim. Listen, the question that I have is that in 1972, I made my first investment in the stock Chevron. Uh, I bought it because my grandfather worked for Chevron. It was called Standard Oil then for Standard Oil, California. Right. Yeah. And over the years, I've accumulated the stock through dollar cost averaging. And so I'm sitting in a pretty large position right now. And I know it pays a good dividend, but do I keep it in that position or do I sell it and pay the long-term capital gains? What's your advice? 
Well, okay, this is really important. You know, some of these stuff are tax accountant questions. I mean, you have to look at what you have versus special portfolio. I can only speak to the quality of Chevron. Mike Worth on our network on Friday morning. I think Chevron is a stock that should be owned. I cannot come up with a reason to sell it. Good yield, good buyback, fantastically well run. So my take is no. Uh, you, you're, you're another take would be, well, wait a second, maybe the rates are going to go up, whatever. But I think Chevron's a great company. That's what I can attest to. Now, the charts, as interpreted by Carolyn Brode, just yes, we know it could be in for some near-term turbulence if it can't break out above last week's highs. Remember, struggling has been able to do that. Lululemon and the Dow Jones Industrial Average both look better. Much more mad money ahead tonight, including we got a quote last on a company called Dicom. And I didn't like the way that I, I I didn't know it well enough. It bugged the heck out of me. So we worked all around the clock on this one, taking a closer look and uh, giving you, the, the, let's say, the investment case for it. Then stop following the hard money. I'm really in one corner of the market that I think actually has a positive narrative base right here, right now. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Every night I come out here, I try to answer everybody's questions to the best of my ability. A lot of stocks out there, though. But it is the lifeblood of the show. Interaction, me, you. Every now and then, I get a question I can't answer. One that is truly intriguing, a question that reveals a lot about the current market. Last night, we got one of these from Paul in Texas. Called, called to ask about a question called DICOM Industries. That's D-Y for you home gamers. Been a long time since I've focused on it. See, DICOM had just reported last Tuesday. And on the surface, wow, the results look pretty strong. Yet the stock immediately lost more than 17% of its value in response. I couldn't give Paul a clear answer beyond saying that DICOM's okay because this is a real enigma that requires a lot of research before we can figure out what happens. When a stock plummets 17% in response to a seemingly solid quarter, well, I got to tell you something, that's either a fabulous buying opportunity or maybe the mother of all red flags. So which one is it? We spent a lot of time. Look, I just felt like you had to come right back on this because it was just like I felt so, so mystified. But let's give you a little background. Dicom's what's called an ENC company, engineering construction firm, that mainly serves the telecommunications industry, which accounts for nearly 89% of their sales. It's usually a pretty steady business. When telco firms lay down new infrastructure, whether we're talking about old-fashioned wires or the most cutting-edge wireless sites, but believe me, Dicom's probably in there doing the building. Last week, we profiled another engineering construction company. It was called Jacobs Engineering which is similar, though it's more diversified, with exposure to a ton of different end markets. But our takeaway was that Jacobs is a buy because it's a huge beneficiary of all that federal infrastructure spending that should start coming through in 2023. And if Jacobs can thrive here, well, got to wonder, why not DICOM? Now, the generic case for this stock is it's pretty straightforward. We've got an insatiable demand for bandwidth in the country that requires constant new investments from the telco industry, including high-capacity fiber networks. And building those, it just ain't cheap. doesn't hurt that the federal government is throwing a ton of money at broadband, including $65 billion, that's a B, in last year's big infrastructure bill. Most of that's earmarked for underserved regions. And that's where DICOM could potentially do a ton of work. There's a problem with that bull case, though. The stock's already had a huge run, even after last week's sudden decline. After melting down in 2018-2019 as Wall Street lost interest in the 5G build-out, DICOM caught fire in 2020, all right? Uh, and it kept on running until a few weeks ago. Why? Because buyers started looking ahead to the next telco investment cycle, which is less about cell towers 
and more about connecting fiber optic networks to the home. And that is DICOM specialty. In fact, until a few weeks ago, this was one of the biggest winners of 2022 because the company reported a series, not one, a series of magnificent quarters. In March, DICOM delivered a big revenue beat with a surprise profit, very strong guidance. Late May, they did even better. Huge revenue beat translated into a monster 41-cent earnings beat of a mere 16-cent basis. Then they gave a magnificent forecast for the next quarter. So far, so good, right? Really going. Fast forward to August. Got another beautiful set of results, a sales and earnings bonanza, with DICOM's backlog ticking up substantially. However, in August, their forecast for the next quarter wasn't quite as good as we got the previous two times, with management talking about contract revenue growth in the low to mid-teens. Now, I know, I know, especially after some of the disappointments we've been seeing lately, lots of companies would kill for that kind of growth. But it was a big deceleration from the 235 number they had just posted. So we're going to 23.5% and now it's going to that teens, which is a pretty big deceleration. So from January through August, Dicom had a magnificent run. By early November, the stock had made a new high at 122, its highest level in nearly five years, and within two bucks of its all-time high, which was set back in 2018. That was during the glory days of the 5G build-out. But, yeah, big but. In the run-up last week to last week's earnings report, Dicom stock fell in the run-up. From 122 to 109 in a matter of weeks. No particular news. It was like the sellers were anticipating an ugly set of numbers. Then Dicom reports last Tuesday, and once again, quarter was pretty impressive. Another sizable top and bottom line beat. They earned $1.80 per share. Wall Street was only looking for $1.32. Pretty amazing, right? Contract revenue is up 22%. So far, so good. Unfortunately, management was conservative with their forecast again. This time, they projected mid to high single-digit contract revenue growth for the next quarter, which is a real deceleration and also less than the analysts were looking for. So how the heck did the stock fall 17% last Tuesday? I think what tipped it was some of the conference call commentary. Remember, the conference call is the most important way to figure out what's going to happen with the stock. CEO Steven Nielsen, I don't know him, but straightforward guy, talked about the, uh, the business potentially being affected by, here we go again, macroeconomic conditions, including the cost of capital. In other words, as the Fed keeps raising interest rates, it's more expensive for the telco carriers to borrow money, which makes it harder for them to start new projects. But to me, this felt like Nielsen was just trying to be conservative. He also made it clear that business remains strong. Many of the programs uh, Dicom's on are strategic, meaning their customers won't be pulling funding just because of higher rates. Now, we could stretch to find some more negatives. One analyst said Dicom would be hurt by a downturn in housing, get a modest portion of their sales from residential construction. I also think that there are some worries about their key customers, like the heavily indebted Lumen, whom you know I'm worried about and mentioned many times. But even Verizon, which does carry a lot of debt. But at the end of the day, I don't want to overthink this. My sense is that Dicom sold off hard last week because it downshifted from an excellent story to a very good story. This is a skittish market where investors are terrified of turning a win into a loss. So they rush to ring a register. You've seen that. That's what's so hard about the market. Now, it, that, the, the, the decline definitely wasn't warranted. Though. It just wasn't. It's nuts that Dicom's now erased all of its year-to-date gains and then some after this quarter. Sure, higher interest rates put a damper on the business, but their backlog has grown for two straight quarters, and you've got that federal broadband money coming that should give them a nice boost. According to management, the feds are reviewing what, where that money is needed, and the decisions will be made by June when they'll start making investments. That makes next year perhaps fantastic for DICOM. Plus, stock down trades at less than 24 times earnings. Uh, four, that's four earnings. That's a substantial discount to where it's been trading over the last five years, going from expensive to cheap in the blink of an eye. Bottom line, Paul in Texas, you got horse sense. I like DICOM. Remember those. We won't know about the spending until June. 
But I like it as a buy on last week's exaggerated pullback because next year they start feeding at the federal trough, although not immediately. And they're going to get fat on that infrastructure money. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Philip in Michigan. Philip! Way to start the lightning round off with some fire. What's going on? I'm a long term listener and a member of your investment club. Bingo. Thank you. With your indication, I'm being all three indexes, three U.S. indexes this year. So thank you. Yes, man. That's what I want to hear. We're doing it right. We're teaching, teaching, teaching. How can I help? I follow your strategy of trading around core positions. I know this company has a good, unrealized long-term value, but it also has an RSI near 65, and a price is approaching your $95 price target. With that in mind, is it time to sell a little of my Morgan Stanley position with the plan to pick we up? Did trim. We did trim a little Morgan Stanley, as you know, because you remember the club, and thank you for joining. But that's the kind of stock that we like here. Remember, we are not in the price-to-sales nonsense. We are in real companies that make real things, return real capital, and Morgan Stanley is one of those. Let's go to Rick in Michigan. Rick! Jimmy, chill. Yo, me the chill's in the house. Murphy, What's going on? Me and my dog Murphy are longtime listeners investment club members and big fans of the Michigan Wolverines. Well, you're like my friend have- uh, Adam Schefter. I, I, I like I'm Murphy the dog. I like Murphy. I, I'm calling out Murphy right now. Give him a shout out. What's going on? <laughs> well, Murphy and I are in a dog pound on uh, this stock. It's a 70 PE. Just bounced off the uh, October lows. The stock is intuitive surgical. Now, okay, in another time, in another time, I would say, listen, I think you just own it, but I'm now even gun shy on the 50 times earnings and more stocks because those are not working. I would tell Murph, be very careful. I don't want Murph to have you get the picture. Let's go to Rick in California. Rick. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Rick. Mr. Kramer, well, you are my what are we thinking? greatest of all teachers. I love it. That's my role at this point. People say, why are you still doing this? I said, look, I'm teaching. I did the hedge fund, did this and that. I'm teaching, so how can I help? Please share your thoughts about AutoZone. Okay, so I read a piece this morning about a price target bump of AutoZone, and I could not believe it. They are still buying back stock. They are doing the slow motion takeout of themselves. I like that stock very much. Do it yourself with the uh, Auto Fleet 13 years. Makes a lot of sense. How about we go to Brian in Georgia? Brian! Hello, Jim. Uh, hope you're doing well. I've enjoyed your show for several years, so oh. thank you for oh, that. And you. I hope you had a you. wonderful Thanksgiving. Oh, we had a good time. It was fun. I, got a, I did Project Momentum. I cleaned out a creek that had been uh, backed up there. What's going on? I'm interested in your thoughts regarding Gartner Inc. Okay, Gartner Inc. is just a very good, solid growth stock, and no one ever talks about it. As a matter of fact, I think you may be the first caller on it. Every time I look at it, I think, well, 30, 35, 40 times earnings, and I want to recommend it. But it is a very good company. How about Craig in Connecticut? Craig! 
Hey, Jim, interested in starting a position in SoFi. I don't know. I mean, every time I say this thing is okay, they, uh, you know, you, they, they bounce it, they, they hit you, they hit you, they hit you. This time it was like on something that was, I did on crypto that didn't, didn't even seem right to me. I don't know. I liked it at six and then five and now it's at four, but I don't think, I, look, Antinodo is a good man. And I think this thing is going to make money eventually. But let's just say that the first bank stock, Morgan Stanley, is a better thing to own. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a good good of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, the mercurial money is chasing China. But Kramer has a strategy that might prove a bit more bankable. Keep it here on Mad Money. Embarrassing how much Wall Street's willing to chase anything, say, connected to China. We saw some truly desperate buying in, in all the Chinese stuff this morning. At the same time, Bitcoin rebounded. The metal showed some signs that they got life into them. And yes, people buying cybersecurity and cloud stocks, 15, 20, 25 times sales. To which I say, wait a second. Rather than speculating on rumors of a slow reopening in China based on overnight news suggesting the Chinese government may treat some COVID strains more like the flu, why not buy something cheap with a more concrete story? Why not invest in the banks? Hear me out. This market really loves value, not high growth. We want cheap stocks of profitable companies that return capital to the shareholders. That's what's worked over the past year. And when it comes to profitable growth at a reasonable price, you know what? I think the banks have it all over everybody else. They're the best story out there. I've said this many times before, but when the Fed rapidly raises interest rates, the banks instantly become more profitable. They pay you next to nothing for your deposits. Have you seen any real big gains in your deposits? Yeah, I thought so. Then they take their money and invest it into your treasuries risk-free for a much higher return, more than 4.5. That lets them practically print money. And I think the analysts have yet to fully bake it into their calculations. Of course, the banks lose in a high inflation environment because people pay back loans in in the future with dollars that are worth less. But it sure seems like the Fed's kind of inflation right now, at least based on that last CPI reading. The other concern is that when the economy slows, they can get crushed by bad loans. Something I'm not too worried about right now, given that unemployment remains ridiculously low. And that is the best determinant of whether you're going to default or not. On top of lending, there's something that's often overlooked. It's been more than a year since we had any sizable underwritings. But once the Fed moderates its harsh position, I'm telling you that you will hear right now, right here, that the floodgates will be open. There are a huge number of companies that want to come public. There hasn't been any activity in the public market for about a year. They've been piling up during the tightening cycle. The moment the Fed says it's time to tighten less aggressively, maybe another 50 basis point rate hike, then wait and see. I bet that lid will blow off. If they do that, investment banking makes a huge comeback. Now, you got to understand the major bank stocks are not trading like anything good is going to happen like that. They're one of the cheapest groups in the market, even after a huge run. And I'm giving you that, a huge run from the bottom. I'm not saying we're catching them at the bottom. Although, you know, if you're a member of the investing club, how much I like this story. J.P. Morgan trades at less than 12 times earnings with a 2.9% yield. Bank of America trades at just under 12 times earnings, too. That's got a lower yield, 2.4%. Morgan Stanley, which the trust owns, sells for closer to 14 times, but it's got a 3.4% yield. Goldman trades at just 11 times earnings. By alma mater, it's got a 2.6% yield. Finally, Wells Fargo, huge position for the trust, right in the middle. 13, less than 13 times earnings, 2.5% yield. But if the underwriting business comes back, 
then the banks would be incredibly compelling down here at these levels, even though we miss, we're not talking about this, right here now. Uh, you got high net interest margins, decent yields, and then you get the earnings that come from investment banking. These companies can raise their dividends when they port, they can buy back shares. And the best of all, they're so cheap that it's unlikely that you'll be crushed by a downturn that some people are looking for. I'm not saying you'd be immunized. If we get a severe recession, nope, the banks will indeed get hit. But I'd much rather own the financials than chase gossamer gains in speculative stocks, betting someone even dumber will come along and take you out of your positions at higher levels. I know we're not catching the bottom in the banks here. That was the but catching bottoms is incredibly risky, like I mentioned at the top of the show. You're playing a dangerous game if you try to catch the high-flying cloud stocks or the Chinese plays. But if you buy something like J.P. Morgan or Bank of Market under 12 times earnings, I mean, these are really great companies. That's not a game. It's an investment. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I probably try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.